the following podcast contains spoilers and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Criminal Adaptations, the show where we take a look at some of your favorite movies and the true crime stories that inspired them. I'm Remy. I spent over a decade working in the film and television industry in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Ashley. I'm a clinical psychologist and forensic evaluator in the state of Oregon. This week, we are hitting the archives. I think this is probably the oldest movie and story we're going to be talking about. Well, I guess not the oldest story, but the oldest movie. Today, we are talking about Dog Day Afternoon, a movie starring Al Pacino. Yes, and directed by Sidney LeMay, and it is a classic. We studied it in film school, I remember, back in Chicago, where I attended school. And I saw this movie a long time ago, but honestly, I wasn't paying much attention. I remember the beginning a little bit, but I had no recollection of the rest of the film, and even less of an idea about the true story behind it. Yeah, I had never heard of this movie, I've never seen this movie, and I had never heard about the case, and I'm very excited that it's a really unique story about a bank robbery. Yes, we like to explore various crimes here on the podcast. We don't like to just stick to murder. A little bit of embezzlement, a little bit of bank robberies. We gotta mix it up from time to time. Especially if the robbery is done in the name of love, like is the case with this story. I do want to put out something. There is a character in this film that is transgender. In the film, they refer to them as he, but out of respect, I am going to be referring to them as they. So just a little forewarning in that. I think that's a good way to handle it. When I talk about Eden, I am going to be referring to her as a her in source material that I read. That is how she identified. Well, I am excited. It was a great film. I'm glad we're discussing it. I'm very glad I had the opportunity to revisit it. Shall we get right into things, Ashley? Yes, let's do it. Tell me about this film. Dog Day Afternoon is a 1975 American crime drama directed by Sidney LeMay and starring Al Pacino, John Cazale, James Broderick, and Charles Durning, with a screenplay written by Frank Pearson based on a Life magazine article by P.F. Kludge and Thomas Moore entitled The Boys in the Bank, which was also the original title for the film before being changed to Dog Day Afternoon. Screenwriter Frank Pearson, who was tapped to write the screenplay by Warner Brothers, worked closely with journalist Randy Wicker, who had previously covered the story for several gay publications and provided technical assistance on New York's gay club scene to add further authenticity to the screenplay. Pearson also analyzed interviews and newspaper articles about the robbery and interviewed those involved for additional research. Pearson additionally attempted to meet with John Wadowitz while he was still in prison, but was turned down due to a financial dispute John was involved in with Warner Brothers at the time. Without getting to speak with John personally, Pearson found the characterization of John extremely difficult to capture on paper due to several conflicting interpretations from the people he interviewed, but still managed to finish the screenplay on time by Christmas of 1973. 
It's wild. The screenplay was finished in Christmas of 1973, and this crime only happened in August 1972. So I don't know why, but Warner Brothers seemed to really want to capitalize on this story and, I guess, go off its popularity. It is a very interesting story. The more I found out about the story itself, all I knew is that it was about a bank robbery. The more I found out, the more interesting it became. So I can understand why studios were eager to bring this to the big screen. For the rights to their stories, each hostage received $600, which is the equivalent to roughly $4,078 today. Bobby Westenberg, whose character plays only a minor role in the film, settled for $750, while John Wadowitz received $7,500, which would be just under $60,000 when adjusted for inflation. John would go on to use these earnings to finally pay for his wife Elizabeth Eden's sexual reassignment surgery. With the script finished, producers went on to hire Sidney LeMay to direct. LeMay stated in an interview that the scene of Sonny's last will was the reason for his decision to work on the film. LeMay had also just previously worked with actor Al Pacino on his film Serpico, whose physical appearance was actually compared to that of real-life John Wadowitz in the original Life magazine article. I was able to find the original article in archives, and it will be linked in the episode description if anyone is interested in reading it, but they have pictures of John Wadowitz, and he does look remarkably like Al Pacino did at this time. The resemblance is wild. Believe it or not, I still have not seen a picture of the real-life John Wadowitz at the time of recording. He looks like a young Al Pacino and a young Robert De Niro. You know, the just really typical, dark-haired, tall Italian. Well, from what I had read in the article, they actually compare him to Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman. But for whatever reason, the studio did not want to pursue Dustin Hoffman to play this role. I have a theory about why they wanted Al Pacino. It could be completely wrong or just a wild coincidence, but we'll get into that in a bit. They must have really wanted Al Pacino for this role because Pacino went on to turn down the role three separate times before finally accepting. I actually looked up a recent interview with Al Pacino where they discussed this aspect where he had turned down this film several times and he just chalked it up to he was partying too much. Mm. Didn't have time to make a movie. He was just having too much fun. Well, I mean, he was huge at this time. It was right after he was in The Godfather, so he was just sought after left and right, had more money than he even knew what to do with, and he was very, very young. So I could see that he just maybe wanted to take a little bit of a break. Understandably so. Pacino's performance as Sonny, which is what John's name was changed to in the film, is actually regarded as one of the first times in cinema history that a mainstream Hollywood actor portrayed a gay lead character on film. Much of the remaining cast consisted of actors Pacino had already worked with in many of his off-Broadway plays. Director Sidney LeMay was initially apprehensive about casting the 39-year-old godfather actor John Cazale to play the 18-year-old character of Sal Naturale, but was convinced within five minutes of the actor's audition. Penelope Allen was cast as the bank teller Sylvia after having worked with Pacino before on the film Scarecrow that same year. 
Pacino also recommended Judith Molina, who was co-founder of the Living Theater for the role of Sonny's mother. Pacino was a member of the Living Theater Company. And finally, Sully Boyar was cast as bank manager Mulvaney, based on Robert Barrett. And Chris Sarandon was also cast as Leon Shermer. Initially, I thought Chris Sarandon was the brother of Susan Sarandon, but we found out that they were married, and she kept her married name, so a little bit of a side note there. During the initial rehearsals, Pacino asked LeMay if they could possibly tone down Sonny's behavior for the film, despite the character being depicted as much more rational than he really was, but his request was rejected. Pacino would later refuse to kiss Chris Sarandon during a scene in which the two were intended to share a heartfelt goodbye. Pacino felt that the scene was exploitive and that the script kept pushing the gay issue onto the audience, even though the viewers already knew that the characters were both homosexual. This time, producers agreed and the scene was changed from an in-person meeting outside the bank into an improvised phone conversation in order to avoid the issue. LeMay decided early on against having any sort of soundtrack or musical score for the film beyond the opening credits in order to heighten the sense of realism he intended to portray. Filming took place between September and November of 1974 and lasted seven weeks. With the film being shot during the fall, temperatures reached a bone-chillingly cold 87 degrees Fahrenheit or 31 degrees Celsius. To avoid having their breath be visible on screen, the actors actually had to place ice in their mouths to even out the temperature before filming. During production, it was reported that Pacino would often take cold showers and deprive himself of sleep and food to more accurately portray his character in a both combination of exhausted yet amped up throughout the entirety of the film. Halfway through production, Pacino collapsed from exhaustion and had to be briefly hospitalized, though. In order to get the full Pacino... Have you no sense of pride in what you do? No sense of duty? No sense of destiny? And allow the actor to have as much freedom as physically possible, cameramen were put on roller skates and wheelchairs in order to fully capture the fluidity of the actor's movements. LeMay also said that he wanted the film to look like it was shot by television cameramen fighting their way through a crowd and have the appearance of a newsreel. I mean, that makes sense because I'll mention this later and I'm sure you'll get into it when you're talking about the movie. But this event was a media circus. Like there were thousands of spectators, hundreds of news reporters standing outside of this bank for hours trying to catch everything that was going on. Yeah, it gets pretty crazy pretty quickly. LeMay wanted the actors to feel natural and encouraged many of them to wear their own clothing and not wear any makeup. LeMay also preferred allowing the cast to ad-lib lines with the condition that they not deviate too greatly from the original script. LeMay's penchant for allowing improvisation was even extended out to the nearly 400 additional extras they had on hand as well. LeMay would allow the crowds to react to the scenes in whatever frenzied manner that they saw fit, and Pacino even improvised the famous Attica scene in front of this crowd. I know ad-libbing and improv stuff is pretty common now. Was it common back in the 70s? It was definitely not as prevalent as it is today. And even today, it's mainly used, I would say, in comedies, not dramas or true crime stories, especially. When asked about his style of filming for the project, LeMay simply said, it's out of my hands and it's got a life of its own. 
LeMay also had access to the footage of John and Elizabeth's wedding ceremony, which had been originally broadcast on Channel 5 at the time of the robbery, and had planned to use the footage in the film but decided against it because he felt that audiences would not take the rest of the movie seriously. And he was worried about audiences laughing at the scene due to their defensive attitude on sexual subjects, is the quote that he said. So a little context for viewers that I'll get into later. This is all going on shortly after the Stonewall Uprising and the gay rights movement. There was still a lot of fear and blatant hatred and misunderstandings about what homosexuality was. It makes sense that directors were nervous about putting some of this out there for their viewers, having no idea how it would be received, while also wanting to be respectful to the real-life people whose lives they're telling a story about. Yes, and I know it goes without saying that uh, the 70s were a very different time and homosexuality was not as accepted as it is today. On top of that, there is a transgender person and mm -hmm. character involved in the story, which was even less common back then. So there was just automatically a, a stigma around this. But I feel like the film did portray it in a fair way. I don't believe that they were overtly characterizing them in offensive ways. They portray the homophobia that these characters experience. I feel like they do a very honest job, despite some of the backstories you hear about actors feeling uncomfortable doing certain scenes or what have you. And with that, let's get into the movie version of the story of Dog Day Afternoon. The movie opens with the words, What you are about to see is true. It happened in Brooklyn, New York on August 22nd, 1972. Our story begins on an upbeat song on a hot and sunny day, showcasing various scenes of people, places, and yes, even dogs on a typical day in New York City in the 1970s. Three men sit in a car idling outside of one of the city's many banks. The driver exits the vehicle and stakes out the scene before returning to the passenger side window and whispering something to the other two men inside. The man in the passenger seat, who has a look of uncertainty etched across his face, is Sonny Wurzik, played by Al Pacino. And the man in the back seat directly behind him is Sal, played by the late John Cazale, who exits the vehicle carrying a briefcase and enters the bank. After a few moments, Sonny follows Sal into the bank while carrying what appears to be a box of flowers, followed seconds later by the driver, who is informed by the security guard that the bank will be closing soon. Inside, Sal takes a seat at the desk of one of the bank managers and opens his briefcase, revealing a semi-automatic weapon, which he points directly at the bank manager, while Sal advises him to stay calm. This bank manager's name is Mulvaney, and he is played by Sully Boyer. Meanwhile, on the opposite end of the bank, Sonny stands around nervously waiting to make his move before finally pulling out a large rifle from the box of flowers he had originally entered with. Now with everyone's attention, Sonny addresses the crowd inside while the third robber aims a small handgun at the security guard, but quickly becomes too scared to continue and immediately wants to leave the situation. Clearly frustrated, but understanding his partner's apprehension, Sonny consents and allows the third man to leave while he and Sal stay behind to finish the robbery. 
After the door is locked and their third man gone, Sonny runs around the room in a jittered frenzy, barking orders at people while trying to maintain control over the situation. Sonny proceeds by spray-painting over the lenses of the bank's security cameras and demanding that the bank manager open the vault immediately. The manager attempts to covertly open the vault using a special key that would sound the silent alarm, but is caught by Sonny who reprimands the man while insisting that he does not want to hurt anyone. Once inside the vault, Sonny makes a devastating discovery. Nearly all of the bank's money had already been picked up earlier that morning, leaving only $1,100 remaining. Frazzled, but not yet defeated, Sonny goes over to the female bank tellers and orders them to start emptying their registers into a blue garbage bag, while warning the women that he had previously worked in a bank so he knows any tricks they might pull to try and contact the police. He proves this by pulling out a stack of decoy money from one of the registers, which he knows contains marked bills. Sonny then gathers up as many traveler's checks as he can carry and proceeds to burn the bank's register book in a nearby trash can. Seemingly satisfied and ready to be on their way, Sonny and Sal prepare to leave. Unfortunately for them, the smoke created by the burning trash can catches the attention of an insurance agent across the street who begins making his way over to the bank to further investigate. Sonny attempts to extinguish the fire and commands Mulvaney to get rid of the man who is now knocking on the bank's front door. Mulvaney does his part and alleviates the man's concerns and provides absolutely no hints about the actuality of the situation occurring within. Once the man is gone, Sonny instructs all of the bank tellers to get inside the vault as he and Sal anxiously ready for their departure. While this is happening, the bank's phone starts ringing yet again and Mulvaney is again instructed to answer it. To his astonishment, the phone call seems to be for Sonny, who reluctantly takes the phone from Mulvaney's hand. On the other end is Detective Sergeant Eugene Moretti, who informs Sonny that they've got him by the balls and instructs him to take a look outside. Sonny does as he's told and nervously looks out the window and spots several police officers across the street watching him. This is preceded by several more police vehicles actively surrounding the building. Now completely deflated, Sonny hangs up the phone and the two robbers both fall to the ground as the severity of their situation begins settling in, and they begin arguing over where things went wrong. Sonny insists it was because he was given bad information and that the money was supposed to be dropped off that morning and not picked up. Extremely on edge and out of options, Sonny paces the room trying to think of a plan as the phone begins ringing yet again until Sonny finally answers. On the other end, once again, is Detective Eugene Moretti, who tries talking with Sonny in an attempt to further assess the situation inside. But Sonny won't play ball and hangs up on the detective after threatening to start throwing bodies out the front door if the cops don't back off. Outside, the police set up barricades as a crowd of onlookers begins to form, watching the dramatic events unfold from the sidelines. The bank is now completely surrounded from all angles, leaving Sonny and Sal trapped like rats. Exasperated and out of options, Sonny attempts to maintain control over the situation and takes Mulvaney into the back room in order to help him barricade the exit. During this, Sonny again reassures Mulvaney that he does not intend to hurt anyone and hypothesizes that the hostages actually are much more likely to be killed or injured by the police officers than by Saller himself. Sonny goes on to compare the situation to the events that took place in Attica Prison in which 42 people were killed in a standoff with police. Outside, the FBI has arrived, along with news reporters, helicopters, a school bus full of additional police officers, and snipers positioned at nearly every window. 
Detective Moretti and his officers have set up a secure location in a barbershop across the street, where the detective once again makes another phone call to Sonny. The two men talk for a bit and come to an agreement that Sonny will release one hostage as a sign of good faith. Sonny chooses the security guard, who has been suffering from an asthma attack since the start of the whole situation, as the hostage who he will let go free. Once the security guard is brought outside to be released, he is immediately ambushed by police officers, who slam this poor man to the ground and point a gun directly at his head. Every police officer in the vicinity seems to have their pistols aimed squarely at the African-American security guard, and it is only after Detective Moretti reassures the officers that this man is actually a hostage that they finally let the man go free. Moretti then tries negotiating with Sonny from across the street, and convinces him to step outside the bank for him to see firsthand just what he's up against. Cautiously, Sonny exits the building and looks out at the sea of police officers surrounding him from every direction. Detective Moretti once again tries to reason with Sonny and attempts to convince him that if he gives himself up now, he may only get just five years for armed robbery. But Sonny doesn't buy this one bit and begins a tirade that culminates with Sonny screaming the iconic lines, Attica! 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 which whips the onlooking crowd of civilians into a frenzy of support for this rebellious bank robber. Sonny and the crowd soon start feeding into one another and quickly join forces as they all begin chanting in unison, put them down, put them down, in reference to the police officer's readily aimed firearms. Back inside, Sonny receives another phone call, only this time it's from a local news station who is live on air and wants to ask him a few questions. The interviewer queries why Sonny is robbing the bank and why he doesn't just get a normal job if he needed the money. Sonny responds by saying he has a wife and children at home and couldn't possibly afford to support them on what most jobs have to offer. The interviewer then asks why Sonny doesn't just give himself up, which Sonny scoffs at and retorts that if the interviewer had ever been to prison, he wouldn't be asking that question. After the call ends abruptly, when Sonny accidentally curses on air, Sonny goes over to Sal to further discuss the situation. During this conversation, Sal reminds Sonny of their agreement to take their own lives if the situation ever went south, as death was a better option than ever having to return to prison. However, Sonny seems trepidatious about this idea and tries to convince Sal that they still might be able to escape if they demand maybe the police give them a helicopter? Sal is obviously pessimistic about this idea, but Sonny persists as if trying to sell Sal and all of the other onlooking hostages that they all still somehow could escape and live in the tropics and live rich long lives in a land of beauty and sunshine. All they needed was a helicopter. It's obviously ridiculous, but at this point, like, they both know they're fucked. So it's like, well, we might as well just hold out some form of hope that we're somehow going to get out of this. I also need to point out that Sonny's partner, Sal, says he would just rather go to Wyoming. (laughs) Than the tropics? Yes. He prefers (laughs) Wyoming to sunshine and beaches. Okay. Interesting choice. Sal Sal is an interesting character. During his pitch, Sonny works himself up so much that he exits the building in order to give his list of demands to Detective Moretti. During his pitch, Sonny works himself up so much that he exits the building in order to give his list of demands to Detective Moretti. The moment Sonny steps outside, he is greeted by a barrage of cheers and applause by the ever-expanding crowd of rowdy onlookers. 
Playing up to the crowd and clearly showing to everyone that he is completely unarmed, Sonny once again begins to lead the crowd in a chant for the officers to put away their weapons. After a moment of hesitation, the officers reluctantly put their guns down, which results in another round of applause from the approving crowd. After the cheers have finally subsided, Sonny speaks with Detective Moretti and gives him a list of just three simple demands. A helicopter, a jet, and for Sonny to be able to speak to his wife. One of these demands is not like the other. In response, Sonny will release one hostage for each demand met. The detective takes this information in and tells Sonny that he'll work on it. Cut to Angie Wurtzik, played by Susan Perez, with her two children speaking with police officers as they attempt to bring her down to the bank to talk to her husband. She speaks in a shrill, exasperating manner while incessantly spewing out information about her and Sonny's tumultuous relationship. Back at the bank, the day has been dragging on and the hostages have started complaining about the lack of air conditioning. Sonny decides to go and see if he can get the AC up and running again, but in the process discovers that the police are trying to enter the building through one of the back exit windows. This infuriates Sonny, causing him to fire his gun wildly out the window, causing the police officers and much of the crowd to disperse from the area. After a few moments, once the chaos subsides and the scene returns to normal, Detective Moretti gets on the police bullhorn and demands that Sonny come out to speak with him once more. Sonny exits the building, and the two men engage in a verbal assault of one another revolving around the events that have just transpired. The detective attempts to calm Sonny by reassuring him that they have a bus on the way that will take them to an awaiting jet at a nearby airport, and that his wife is on her way and should be arriving any minute to speak with him. The detective then asks Sonny if he needs anything else, which Sonny responds to by asking for some aspirin and some pizzas for the starving hostages within. The detective agrees, and the pizzas are brought in in a matter of minutes. Sonny even gives the delivery boy a big old tip from a stack of the bank's money while the crowd enthusiastically cheers him on. Quickly realizing that he once again has the entire crowd in the palm of his hands, Sonny begins throwing the remaining cash into the crowd of spectators, nearly causing a riot as the audience clamors for the free cash, violently drifting through the air, while they all start chanting, more, more, more. Onlookers, if you want money, you go rob your own bank. This was a rowdy crowd. This was like a sporting event crowd for this bank robbery. Back inside the bank, the mood seems relatively casual with the hostages eating pizzas, making phone calls, and even playing around with Sonny's rifle. However, the laid-back atmosphere is soon interrupted when Sonny receives a phone call informing him that his wife has arrived. Much to everyone's surprise, though, it is Leon Shermer, played by Chris Sarandon, who is brought in to speak with Sonny, and not Angie, as we would have originally anticipated. It is explained that Leon is, in fact, Sonny's wife, and the two were married in a ceremony together earlier that year. The second Sonny lays eyes on Leon, his face lights up as he begins joyously calling over to them, which causes Leon to faint, while the police look on with mocking laughter. After Leon is revived, Detective Moretti pleads with Leon to try and convince Sonny to surrender peacefully, but Leon insists that Sonny is crazy and proceeds to give inside details on their abusive relationship. 
Leon goes on to explain that after meeting with a psychiatrist, Leon came to the realization that he was actually a woman trapped in a man's body and that Sonny must have decided to rob the bank in order to get the $2,500 needed for the sexual reassignment surgery after Leon had attempted suicide. The detective continues to plead with Leon to speak with Sonny, but Leon refuses and breaks down in tears. Back inside the bank, Sonny is given the news that Leon won't speak with him, as he watches a local news broadcast of he and Leon's wedding being shown on air, revealing to the world that Sonny is a homosexual. As the sun begins to set, Sonny and the hostages sit around conversing in some light-hearted small talk, when suddenly the power is cut. Sonny once again goes outside to speak with Detective Moretti, but is instead greeted by FBI agent Sheldon, played by James Broderick, who has now taken over negotiations from Detective Moretti. Agent Sheldon manages to convince Sonny to allow him to enter the bank in order to verify that the hostages are all still alive and well, which he accomplishes without any issues. After Agent Sheldon leaves, the bank manager, Mulvaney, starts going into shock from his diabetes, but Sonny acts quickly and allows a pair of EMTs inside to treat the man's condition. It is during this that Sonny finally gets the call he has been waiting for all night from his wife, Leon. With shaky hands, Sonny answers the ringing telephone and hears his wife's voice on the other end. At first, the conversation is heated as they talk about Leon's time in the psychiatric hospital and how much pressure Sonny has been under in his current situation. The conversation begins to finally lighten as Sonny tells Leon of his plan to escape in a jet and offers them a ride and says that they could go anywhere they want together. Leon is worried that the police will charge him for conspiracy. Sonny yells at the police, who are listening in on the other line, that Leon is innocent and begs that the officers get off the other line for him to speak with his wife in private, which they obviously do not do. Sonny confesses that the real reason he wanted to speak with Leon was to say goodbye to his wife one last time, but when the time finally comes, the two hesitate and postpone ending the conversation for as long as possible before finally hanging up their receivers. Sonny looks brokenhearted and stares off blankly for a moment before picking the phone back up and calling his other wife, Angie. Angie immediately begins talking and doesn't allow Sonny to get in a word until he finally erupts and begins screaming. Angie asks why Sonny would leave her for another man. Sonny asks why Angie didn't come down to the bank to see him like he had wanted her to. Angie says she couldn't get a babysitter, so Sonny hangs up on her. After the EMTs have finished treating Mulvaney, Sonny escorts them out of the building and sees that the gay community has joined the growing crowd of spectators with signs and banners that are all in full support of Sonny, though there are portions of the crowd who boo the new flamboyant crowd as they enter the scene. Sonny's mother is then brought in in an attempt to get Sonny to surrender, but after his mother's presence soon becomes too overbearing for him to handle, he hugs her goodbye and shouts to the nearby officers to bring his mother back home. Back inside the bank, Sonny dictates his last will and testament to one of the bank tellers, and this is the scene which the director, Sidney LeMay, said was the reason he did this film. In a truly emotional scene, Sonny bequeaths 5000 of his $10,000 life insurance plan to his wife, Leon, the, and I'm quoting the movie here, the only man he has ever loved, so that they will finally be able to afford the operation for their sexual reassignment surgery. The other 5000 he leaves to his other wife, Angie, the only woman he has ever loved, hmm. and hopes that his children will still remember him someday. He also apologizes to his mother for never being the man she had always wanted him to be, and requests a military funeral, having served his country in Vietnam. 
Outside, a large, stretched van pulls up to the front of the bank to take Sonny and the hostages to the airport. Sonny inspects the vehicle and picks a random federal officer to act as the driver. The robbers then use the hostages as human shields, covering them from all angles as everyone makes their way into the vehicle. The mood inside the van is tense as they wait for their police escort to lead the way in front of them. Once the parade of cars finally begins to move, Sonny is greeted firsthand by both love and hatred from the crowd as they pass by on their way to Kennedy Airport. They soon arrive to an awaiting jet on standby near the runway, but just as everyone is about to exit the vehicle, the driver removes a revolver from the passenger side glove compartment and shoots Sal right between the eyes, killing him instantly. The car is immediately swarmed by federal agents from all sides, and Sonny is finally arrested at the end of a very long dog day afternoon. The title cards then read, Sonny Wurtzik is serving 20 years in federal prison. Angie Wurtzik lives with her children on welfare. Leon Shermer is now a woman and living in New York City. And that is the film Dog Day Afternoon. What did you think about that, Ashley? I think what I liked most about hearing about it were some of the like stylistic decisions the director made like having it shot in a way that would look like it was a tv camera shooting it and making it so there wasn't really any music so i think that just kind of makes it seem more in reality and like you're actually like in the bank with these people than just a dramatized version of a recent event Yes, I must say this movie was brilliantly directed. I am not a huge Sidney LeMay fan, personally. I haven't seen Serpico, and like I said, I had seen this movie, I think, one time before, but really didn't pay any attention. But after this, actually paying attention to the film, I must confess, I probably had the wrong idea about this guy. He is very talented, very brilliant, and all of his talents are on display in this film, and it is very, very well done. I also like that he didn't try to edit out some of the characters and their gender and sexual identities. I think with the political climate, the way it was around that time, I think a lot of directors probably would have and just made it like, oh, he's just trying to get money for his wife and kids. But the fact that he, it sounds like he portrayed the motivations and love between these characters and sometimes the fear between some of them. Them in a realistic and humanizing manner is something I, I think is pretty cool. I completely agree with that. I must say after we have seen quite a few movies at this point, they usually do take a lot of liberties. And the fact that this was made in the 70s with that sort of climate going around the country at the time, I respect the fact that he did keep that information intact and tried to show it in a fair, respectful manner. Now do you want to hear what happened after this film came out? Yes, and I am curious to see how it was received. Dog Day Afternoon was released nationwide on September 21st, 1975 and grossed $50 million, which translates to over $280 million when adjusted for inflation. Wow. Pretty impressive. Upon theatrical release, Dog Day Afternoon was a critical and box office success. The film was nominated for six Academy Awards and seven Golden Globe Awards and won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. 
in 2009, Dog Day Afternoon was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress, and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. In 2012, the Motion Pictures Editors Guild listed Dog Day Afternoon as the 20th best edited film of all time based on a survey of its members. Dog Day Afternoon is also, needless to say, certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with a rating of 96%. Mm. And the critical consensus reads, framed by great work from director Sidney LeMay and fueled by a gripping performance from Al Pacino, Dog Day Afternoon offers a finely detailed snapshot of people in crisis with tension-soaked drama shaded in black humor. I'd say that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah, in case viewers haven't caught on yet, we love reading the critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes. I feel like it always is just a nice little snapshot of what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, I know some people are not fans of Rotten Tomato, but we on this podcast are are Rotten Tomato supporters for the most part. (laughs) But not everyone was head over heels for this film when it came out. John's wife, Carmen, who was called Angie in the film, received just $50, or what would equate to just over $280 today from the artist entertainment complex for her contribution to the story. She went on to claim that the depiction of her character, Angie, in the film was repulsive. In the novelization of Dog Day Afternoon, written by author Leslie Waller, Carmen is referred as such things as a fat cunt, a no-good puss bag, and a guinea broad. These are straight from the book. That's awful. There are also many other unflattering terms of endearment. John Wadowitz was also very upset by Carmen's depiction in the film, and the writer of the script, Frank Pearson, even agreed that her character's interpretation was farthest from the truth and even submitted a complaint to the Writers Guild of America. Why would they change her like that? Like, the story isn't about her. I'm not sure. It doesn't really explain why it was decided to change her character so much. I know the real-life woman is very uh, trim, and they had a much more overweight actress play her. They had her look like she had just, just was stressed out of her mind. Her hair was uncombed. Her house was a mess. It was a very, very, very unflattering portrayal. I don't like that. Yes, it is interesting that a movie with homosexual characters and transgender characters that was released in the 70s, those characters were treated with respect, and this other character just wasn't for some reason. Carmen would go on to take legal action against Warner Brothers and filed an invasion of privacy lawsuit for $12 million, but the appellate division of the New York Supreme Court eventually ruled in favor of Warner Brothers, since the true names and pictures of the family and robbers were never used in the film or novelization. So the fact that Carmen was referred to as Angie, and there were no real photos of the real Carmen in the movie, they were not held liable. Even though it's clear yes, it's, that it's her. It's a corporate loophole that they found. It's, it's not right, but it sucks. 
John Wadowitz then sued the studio for 1% of the film's earnings, which he claimed was included in his deal for the use of his story. And he actually received $40,000, which is equivalent of roughly a quarter of a million dollars in 2023, but was also ordered by the New York Supreme Court to pay a weekly sum of $100 a week to Carmen Wadowitz, plus an additional $50 a week for both children. Was this all done, obviously not this last ruling, but the original deal that was made, was that done before people could not financially profit off their crimes? Funny you should ask, Ashley. The remaining money was placed in escrow of the New York State Crime Victims Compensation Board in order to help pay for claims of the victims of the original 1972 robbery. That's what happened with the Gainesville Ripper when that woman tried to sell her story and have a book deal. She was able to be successfully sued and all the money she got from that deal was put in the victim's crime fund. Which is the right thing to do. No one should be able to make a penny off of a crime, especially if you are the assailant of that crime. Anyway, that was Dog Day Afternoon. Do you have any opinions of this film, Ashley? Do you have any questions, comments, what have you? I'm still reeling with those words that were used in the novelization of this movie, which I accidentally purchased thinking it was not the novelization of the movie. And now I'm like, I'm going to burn that book when we go camping in July, because that is just appalling. And I feel so bad for her. I forgot that you actually did. She accidentally bought the novelization of the film instead of the true story of the film when we were doing our prep for this. I guess you do have the book that has all those derogatory terms and I apologize to the audience if anyone was offended by that sort of thing. I'm, I'm literally just taking the words directly from the source material. And I even didn't say some of the other worse ones. That's terrible. Other than that aspect, I would be interested in watching this movie. I know I was home when you were watching it, so I would occasionally walk into the room and it looked fun. It was. It was a very, very, very good movie. And usually it takes me a few days, what with the note taking and constant checking on names and dates and actors and all that stuff. It takes me a few days to get through the whole film and write the whole summary. This one I busted through in one long day. It really had me hooked. It's a great film. But I'm also curious to hear the true side of this story, Ashley. Would you mind enlightening me? Yes, let's get into the true story behind Sidney LeMay's Dog Day Afternoon. John Wadowitz was born in Brooklyn in 1945. Per his mother Terry, who he was extremely close with throughout his life, John was a good kid who loved baseball, Monopoly, and stamp collecting. He was seldom in trouble and graduated with a high GBA. He had two brothers, one of whom is rarely mentioned in any of the source material. His oldest brother Tony was premature and weighed only one pound when he was born. He developed severe epilepsy when he was three or four years old. His seizures were so severe that he had to relearn basic functions after each one. He had to relearn how to walk and talk and really basic things. It's unclear why, but the state of New York took Tony away from his family and put him in an institution when he was five years old. He would live in institutions throughout his whole life, but John visited him as often as he could. 
One of the primary source materials I reviewed for this movie is a documentary called The Dog. And it is essentially a documentary solely about John. And Remy, this is the cover photo for this documentary, which I do highly recommend. Oh my god, okay. Um, the How do I even begin to describe this? It's a man, he's got a very large lapel, he is sitting on a bed with a red blanket of sorts. He has a bunch of dollar bills, either that he's tossed up or, or is crumpled all over him, and a revolver. And he is sitting in a very seductive, cross-legged, come-hither pose. It's a pretty great photo. <laughs> In the documentary, John is promptly featured because it is about him. And I will say he could be viewed as a polarizing figure, but he also comes across as a guy who really does have good intentions. And some of the most heartwarming scenes in the documentary are John and Tony just spending the day together. They go to Coney Island and they go to the zoo. It's clear that they both really love and adore each other. John started working as a bank teller at a Chase Manhattan bank in 1964, which is where he met his first wife, Carmen Belfuco. John said he fell in love with Carmen the first time he saw her, a trend that we will see will become pretty typical for him. John was drafted into the Vietnam War shortly after he and Carmen started dating. He had his first homosexual experience in basic training, which consisted of him waking up to another man giving him a blowjob. Although this is a sexual assault in my opinion, John wasn't phased and he had a fling with the man because in John's words, he, quote, blew great. John was sent to Vietnam in October 1966. He was stationed at two different military bases and saw combat. In February 1967, a missile attack struck his airbase and killed 90% of the soldiers stationed there. He returned to the U.S. shortly after that missile attack and married Carmen in October 1967. Their marriage was problematic straight from the start. Carmen's parents opposed the wedding, and the priest who married them even tried to convince Carmen to get it annulled the same night. Wow, all right, that's a promising start. No one liked John in that family. The couple split in June 1968. Per Carmen, who was featured in the documentary, she learned about the split when she came home and basically all of her shit was gone. So even though they separated in 1968, their divorce wouldn't be finalized for decades. Before they split, they had two children together. The Stonewall riots started one week after their separation. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Stonewall Uprising, it was essentially a series of protests by members of the New York gay community in response to repeated police raids that took place in Greenwich Village in Lower Manhattan. It is credited as being a starting point for the gay liberation movement. After Stonewall, John joined the Gay Activist Alliance, which at the time was the largest and most vocal of all gay right groups. They held peaceful demonstrations every week and met at different locations until they set up headquarters in an old firehouse in Greenwich Village. In addition to regular meetings, GAA held dances every Saturday, which drew thousands of attendees. John would go to these dances every week and had sexual relationships with many of the men there, several of which had not disclosed their sexual orientation to anyone before. 
John became more active in the political side of the gay rights movement in 1970. He went by the name of Little John Basso. Basso was his mother's maiden name, which he admired because it illustrated his Italian heritage. He added the little in front of his name because his, quote, prick was little. And this is a direct quote from John. He says very, he just kind of says what he thinks it is. I think he calls himself, oh, I can't remember the word. He basically says he's obsessed with sex and he says it in a, a humorous way. On June 6, 1971, John met Ernest Aaron, who went by the name Liz Eden. At this point in time, Eden dressed in semi-drag, meaning she wore pants and makeup as men were not really allowed to freely dress in full drag at that time. John was infatuated with Eden from the start. In an old interview with Eden, she explained how John brought her roses every time he saw her. She described him as a hopeless romantic who never missed a single holiday or anniversary and was extremely proud to be dating her. John and Liz Eden got married, although not formally because gay marriage was still illegal, at a cafe on December 4th, 1971. A priest conducted the wedding ceremony and it was filmed for the GAA archives. At this point in time, gay wedding ceremonies were virtually unheard of. John wore his military uniform, and Eden wore a gown that would have cost over $7,000 when adjusted for inflation. The entire wedding party was dressed in full drag, and John's mother, who was very happy for the couple, was the only family member of his to attend. Despite the happy occasion, the couple were not without their problems. Some sources said John was violent, controlling, jealous, and obsessed with sex. They briefly split in April 1972 as they were arguing all the time, often about Eden's desire to have gender reassignment surgery. John would later say he opposed the surgery for two reasons. First, he didn't realize how important it was to Eden at the time, and second, he was worried he would not be attracted to her if she got the surgery. In addition to their arguments, Eden started to self-harm and attempted suicide several times. The last attempt occurred on her birthday, August 21st, 1972. Eden was taken to a psychiatric hospital, and John soon learned that she would be given electroshock therapy because the doctors assumed Eden must be mentally ill to want such an operation. Feeling like he had no other options, John decided he was going to get Eden out of the hospital and acquire the funds to pay for her operation. I should point out that in the film, when they go and get Eden, it is from the hospital. She is taken directly from the psychiatric hospital in order to speak with Sonny at the bank. And her suicide attempts were severe enough that it would have, even in today's time, resulted in a psychiatric hospitalization. I think there was one time where she, like, put her whole arm through a window and, like, her whole, like, forearm was all cut up. And most of her suicide attempts involved taking large amounts of various medications in an attempt to overdose. And she had said in old interviews that I saw that it was primarily because of her deep depression because she didn't feel like she was in the right body and she also didn't feel like she had the support of her husband to get the surgery that she thought would make her happy. The night after Eden's hospitalization, John, who was 27 years old at the time, met up with two acquaintances, 20-year-old Bobby Westenberg and 18-year-old Sal Neutrali, also known as Donald Matterson. Matterson was a fugitive who escaped from a New Jersey prison. 
The group collected some guns and spent the night at the Golden Nugget Hotel. The next day, August 22, 1972, the trio set out to rob a bank. Their plan was to carry the guns into the bank inside a huge box that was painted to look like a Wrigley Spearmint gum package. That is, I guess, what it looked like. I, I just assumed it was flowers because it was the same box from Terminator 2 when the Terminator is in the hallway and he takes the gun out of the box. It was the same, same thing. So it was painted to look like this gum package because Andy Warhol was really big at the time. So they were trying to disguise it as like a pop art deco piece. That's a very interesting choice. At the first bank, one of the men dropped one of the shotguns, which caused it to fire. They simply just picked the gun up, put it in the car, and drove off. They then went to a second bank, but Westenberg's mom's best friend was there, noticed them, and started chatting them up, so they had to leave. Feeling somewhat dejected, the trio decided to go to a movie theater and watch The Godfather to get inspiration and get hyped up. I wonder if not only was Al Pacino casted because of the resemblance, but also because of this godfather thing that basically like gave them the rejuvenation and the excitement they needed. Got them all pumped up. After the movie was over, the three men walked into Chase Manhattan Bank at 2.50 p.m. The bank was about to close, so only bank employees were in the building. Shortly after they entered, Westenberg got cold feet and left. One of the two remaining men handed a teller a note which said, This is an offer you can't refuse. Pulled out a shotgun from the gum box and told everyone to cooperate. I'm assuming they omitted that part from the movie for copyright issues? Oh, probably. The men soon learned that the armored truck that picked up the bank's cash each day had arrived earlier than planned, but in the end, they would collect $38,000 in cash and 175000 in traveler's checks. Within the first few minutes of the heist, one of the tellers sounded a silent alarm and the area was quickly swarmed with law enforcement. In the movie, they never reveal how the police were notified. Yeah, this says it was like a silent, a silent alarm that was triggered. Over the course of the next 14 hours, which is how long this heist lasted, the area would be filled with 200 police officers, snipers, and FBI agents, 2,000 cheering spectators of all ages, many of which traveled to get there, and dozens of news reporters. John's mother was also at the scene the entire time. The whole thing was broadcasted live and took airtime away from President Nixon's Republican convention. One news reporter actually called the bank and spoke to John, and this interview was aired live. I wonder why they don't do that more nowadays. News reporters, are, they're never just calling the perpetrators mid-crime. During the interview, John said he would release the hostages if police, quote, delivered my wife here from King County Hospital. His name is Ernest Aaron. It's a guy. I'm gay. They did not put that part in the film, I'm assuming, to have the element of surprise when that is revealed. John spent most of the 14 hours outside of the bank negotiating with police, while Matterson stayed inside with the hostages. John tried to stay as friendly as possible when he was interacting with the hostages. He allowed them to call their family members, use the bank's cash to pay for pizza, and at one point started throwing wads of cash outside to spectators, which of course amped everyone up. 
When speaking to law enforcement about his demands, he asked to have Eden brought to the scene, and from there, he wanted to be flown to Denmark with Eden and Matterson so she could get her surgery. Eden was brought to the scene, but she refused to speak to John, claiming he was unstable and would kill her. She eventually agreed to speak to John in exchange for one of the hostages. They would have about three or four very brief conversations all over the phone. The conversation in reality was a phone conversation. It was not an in-person meeting like the script originally intended. There is an in-person meeting, but with someone else. During those phone conversations, John tearfully stated that he couldn't just leave the bank because he thought he would be shot. He also thought Matterson would kill the hostages if he left, which he couldn't let happen because he was responsible for their safety. And the reason why he believed that is because Matterson was a fugitive. He had escaped from prison and he repeatedly said that he would die before he got sent back. John was allowed to speak to one other person, another transgender woman he dated before Eden. Their contact was done face-to-face at the front of the bank, and when they started kissing, spectators responded by yelling homophobic slurs at them. John also spoke to the mayor of New York. The mayor supposedly told John that he would be killed, along with the hostages, if he did not abort his plan because John was making a fool out of New York and their police department on national television. Clearly, this mayor, whoever it was at the time, had his priorities straight. Eventually, the FBI agreed to have a car take John and Matterson to John Kennedy Airport. A few hostages were released, but most of the others all piled into the car as their plan was to release them when they arrived. Little did John know the driver was an FBI agent. The men were taken directly onto the runway and were immediately met by armed FBI agents. Matterson was shot and killed during this heist as he made it clear he was not going to be apprehended. But John immediately surrendered. Westenberg was arrested soon thereafter as an accomplice. He would go on to plead guilty to conspiracy charges and spend two years in prison. While awaiting trial for bank robbery and kidnapping, the GAA publicly withdrew support for John and his actions. He was condemned by his gay community. It is understandable. It makes sense. Yeah. In October 1972, so just, what, two months after, John's lawyer told him that Hollywood wanted to make a movie about the robbery. Eden encouraged John to sign over movie rights so she could use the money to get gender reassignment surgery. On November 30th, 1972, John signed a document allowing him to be portrayed in a movie that would be originally titled Boys in the Bank. He gave all the money he was given to Eden. Eden had gender reassignment surgery on March 27, 1973. During a phone call shortly after the operation, she told John it would be the last time they would see or speak to each other because their relationship was not healthy for her. This news devastated John, and he attempted suicide. He had actually pled guilty to his charges, so there was no trial, but there was going to be a trial for sentencing. And he was transported to his sentencing hearing from a hospital. At this hearing, he was sedated, had bandages all over his arms. When asked if he had anything he wanted to say, he stated, Love is a very strange thing. Some feel it more deeply than others. I love my wife, Carmen, my son, my daughter, my mother, and Ernie. I love all of them. I know it was wrong to rob the bank, but what is money compared to human life? He then essentially asked the judge if he would have robbed the bank if he needed money to pay for his wife's cancer treatments. 
When the judge said no, John told the judge he obviously didn't know what love was, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Wow. Okay, geez. Yeah, that's one way to, you know, really... (laughs) Yeah, you probably should not uh, use the judge as a negative talking point during trial. John was sent to Lewisburg Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. At that time, it was a very violent facility. There were inmate assaults daily, and nearly half of them carried weapons. John was assaulted several times right when he got to prison. He was vulnerable and couldn't really associate with anyone because he was openly gay. The other inmates also heard rumors about the movie deal and were jealous of him and potentially thought hurting him would get their names in the paper. In addition to regular assaults, three inmates knocked him out with a lead pipe and raped him. He was treated in the infirmary and immediately put back into general population despite his pleas for protection. In July 1974, John met another gay inmate and jailhouse lawyer named George Heath. Heath felt sorry for John, and the two developed a fast relationship. And when I say fast, I mean they were married in the prison yard two weeks after they met. Don't even have a reaction. They, <laughs> the man moves fast. Yes, he does. Love hits you like a sledgehammer sometimes. You just got to go for it. When Dog Day Afternoon came out in 1975, John viewed the movie privately. The warden didn't want to show the movie to the rest of the population, but he relented when John threatened to cause a riot if it wasn't shown. He claimed he wanted everyone to see the movie because no one believed him that the movie was ever going to be made. When speaking about his thoughts on the movie, he praised how he and Eden were portrayed. He said watching the film was, quote, a very moving experience, but it did not show the whole truth, and the little it did show was constantly twisted and distorted. His biggest problem with the film was that it hinted that he made some sort of deal to betray Madison. He also disliked how Carmen was portrayed, as he said he thought she looked horrible, and it was inferred that their divorce contributed to his homosexuality. After the movie's release, John started receiving letters from people all over the country. The letters were overwhelmingly positive, and he personally replied to as many as he could. During this time, Heath helped John file an appeal for a sentence reduction. The argument was John's due process rights were violated because he was sedated and not in the right state of mind during his sentencing hearing. Remember, he was taken directly from a hospital where he had just been treated for a severe suicide attempt, and he was on drugs. His sentence, this is pretty interesting, his sentence was reduced to 15 years, but the judge also advocated for his immediate parole. Is that common, where you have a reduction of sentence and also at the same time are encouraged to be released? I feel like no, because if the judge thought that John should be released immediately, why wouldn't he just give in a lower sentence? The judge might have had like a mandatory minimum that he must have had to meet. Oh, okay, okay. I I have heard of, of things along those lines where there's a minimum sentence that the judge has to carry out, even though the judge may not want to give that amount of time. Before he was paroled, John sat for a televised interview for the Gene Parr Show. During the interview, the host played a message from Eden, who said she thought about John every day. In response to the message, John stated, I love you a great deal, and I did what I did because I loved you and I wanted you to be happy. I don't regret doing it because it saved your life, and all I want is for you to be happy. I know I don't see you or hear from you, but as long as you're happy, that's all that counts because I love you. John was paroled to a federal halfway house in New York in 1978. 
He started working as a janitor and moved back in with his parents where he would remain until he died. His family never mentioned the robbery. George Heath was released the same year and also moved into John's parents' home for about nine or ten months. The couple would split two years later. At one point, John got a job with an inmate reintegration program, but he was laid off a few months later due to budget cuts. He also tried to get a job as a security guard at the same bank he robbed. He referred the bank to Dog Day Afternoon as his reference and argued that no one would rob the bank if he was guarding it. He also offered to sign autographs outside and encourage people to open accounts as he was doing so. He didn't get the job. He then wanted to drive a taxi, which would stream Dog Day Afternoon in the back seat, but the parole board wouldn't let him get a driver's license. He was really trying to cash in from this movie. And he would continue to do so. In fact, with no promising job prospects, John started standing outside of the bank he robbed, sometimes wearing a black shirt, which read, I robbed this bank. While his presence clearly upset bank employees, pedestrians flocked to the bank for pictures and autographs. At this point, his whole identity was the dog, a former bank robber and hopeless romantic. He repeatedly said he did not regret the robbery because in the end, Eden got her operation and he won. He would briefly return to prison twice in the mid to late 1980s for minor parole violations. Liz Eden posed nude for several magazines and sometimes ran into John at nightclubs. The pair did an interview at a sex shop at one point, and during the interview, Eden alleged John actually robbed the bank to pay back mob debts. John adamantly denied this claim, and there's never been any evidence that he had mob ties. Kind of the rumor was John took money from the mob to help pay for their wedding and that that's why he was in debt to them. But the mob never took any credit for any of this. And basically everyone who said anything about this is like, why would the mob team up with this like complete loose cannon? Pretty much the only thing that anyone could link to them is like the mob did back some of the clubs that he went to and he was Italian. But that was it. So very loose connection. Yeah. By 1987, John's routine consisted of sleeping throughout the day and partying at night. He often brought home homeless or drug-addicted men to his mom's house. His mother always showed these people the utmost kindness and respect. She would make them meals and basically let them stay for as long as they needed. Liz Eden died from AIDS in 1987. She lived in Rochester at the time of her death, and a close friend said she had some regrets about her surgery as it did not make her as happy as she expected. John attended and spoke at her funeral. John continued having a tough time getting work throughout his entire life. He was on welfare in 2001 when he was approached by two documentarians, Allison Berg and Frank, I'm going to butcher this last name, Curterin. And these are the two documentarians that made the documentary, The Dog, which will also be linked in the episode description notes. These directors started filming the documentary in 2002. The documentarian said John was, quote, a hundred times more unusual, interesting, and hilarious than they anticipated. John was very happy that someone was interested in telling his story, and he really liked the documentarians because they actually self-financed their operation. He viewed them as New York underdogs just like himself. 
The documentary, titled The Dog, was released in 2013. It is really, really good. I highly recommend everyone watch it. It includes interviews not only from John, but from his mom, his first wife, Carmen, and several witnesses that include news reporters and bank tellers. There's also archive footage of some other people. I should note the documentary may not be for everyone. John is a controversial character who does not shy away from discussing sexual matters, often in a crude way. For example, he calls himself a pervert because of his high sex drive, but there's also some commentary in there about the importance of racial inclusivity and how he gives money and food to people in need whenever he is able. And as I mentioned earlier, the scenes with him and his disabled brother are really cute. John was diagnosed with skin and breast cancer a few years after filming for the documentary started. He did not receive any treatments for his condition, so he slowly withered until he died in 2006 at the age of 60. There is a scene where you can see that he looks very, very ill. His mother, who was no doubt the most loving and stable relationship in his life, died the same year at the age of 85. Carmen, his first wife, never remarried. She died in 2013, and the whereabouts of their surviving children are unknown. And that is the true story behind Sidney LeMay's Dog Day Afternoon. What did you think, Remy? I think that John is a very interesting character from the sound of it. I am actually very curious to watch that documentary now, because I would love to see just the difference between Pacino's performance and the real-life John. I was thinking about this while you were speaking. This is a love story. It's a tragic love story. This is, I think, the first true crime that we've done that I would call this a love story. This is two people that were in love and one went over the line trying to give someone he loved something that they felt like they wanted and needed. I find this, it's a very touching story. Yeah, I agree. I definitely do see it as a love story. I think John's impulsivity and desperation made him make obviously very rash and poorly formed decisions. But I also appreciate how this guy was just unapologetically himself, especially at a time and in a community where people didn't feel and were not safe to be that. I guess it is time for us to rate this movie with our unique rating system that we have developed. If this is your first time listening, our rating system consists of three levels. Either the film is not guilty, meaning they got all of the details correct, or at least the majority of them. Mistrial, which means that they got some of the stuff right, but they still changed a lot. And guilty, which means the two stories basically have nothing to do with one another. I will kick us off here. I would give this movie a not guilty. I think it is a pretty accurate description of how the robbery went down, which is what the movie is completely centered on. 
I also think that they described some of the relationships between the characters accurately, even though obviously liberties were taken with how they were portrayed individually as people. But I think the basic story for the robbery and the motive behind it and what happened during it did seem to be pretty true to form. And I completely agree. Uh, I would give this film a not guilty rating as well. I found a lot of details were exact. Uh, It seems that the director spent a lot of time trying to portray this film as accurately and respectfully as he could. And I feel that he succeeded. The filming style of just feeling like a fly in the wall, it feels like you're watching all of this unfold. It just seems like the situation was captured brilliantly in that regard. You felt the tension between the characters, you felt the the needs of the characters, the wants, all of their motivations were pretty well formed. I would say the only things that were changed were not things that would drastically affect the main focus here, which was the bank robbery. Well, do you want to tell them what we have next week, or should I, Ashley? This is this is a random one, which I'm fairly positive not a single person has seen or even heard of this movie or crime. I had not heard about the movie. I had not heard about the crime, and I have done my research behind it, and I'm very excited to get into it. There's going to be a lot to unpack with this. It is going to be based on the movie Stuck, which is a story about a woman who hits a man with her car. He is lodged in her windshield and she does not provide any assistance whatsoever. She just leaves him in, in the windshield of her car. Hopefully you'll join us for that. The film stars Mina Suvari. Uh, I don't remember the year it came out. I don't remember the director. We'll let you know that next yeah, week. <laughs> so again, we, we like to go into these things as blind as possible and not have much of an idea about the film or the true story so that we are learning along the way with you guys. Until then, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us get our podcast out there and makes it so we can keep bringing you awesome movie true crime content. Now, we are recording these a little bit in advance, but we are trying to encourage people to rate and review us and, you know, interact with us, participate. So if you do give us a five-star review, we will be reading off names uh, for the next season. We will include your name. We'll probably do a whole ending of an episode where we will go over anyone who is kind enough to like, comment, subscribe to our show as just a, a small token of our appreciation. Till then, we will see you next week. Thank you all, and goodbye.